The following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Revelation. And just to start with, I thought that um, 2012, I thought was the best year to do this because you're familiar with the Mayan Indian calendar. You know the movie 2012? which is based on the Mayan Indian predictions. You know, their whole, their whole calendar ends on the 21st of December, 2012. So that's generated a huge amount of hype and speculation that we're going to get to the December 21st and the world is going to come to a cataclysmic end. So I've planned the series, you'll be pleased to know, so that it finishes just before December the 21st. So we'll get through Revelation, the world will end and we'll be good to go. So that's convenient, isn't it? But Revelation is um, it's just a unique book in the Bible. Uh, I think if, if, if you think of the books in the Bible like a family, Revelation's like the child that ran off and joined the circus. It's just out there. It's just weird. We find it bizarre. We find it difficult. Uh, it's intimidating. It's difficult. It's obscure. It's scary. I had a conversation with someone the other day who just said they find Revelation just completely scary. Uh, and frightening, all the visions and, and, and beasts and so on that are in this book. But at the same time, it's beautiful. Uh, it's worshipful. It's majestic. And it's awe-inspiring. And, and somehow all of those adjectives work for Revelation. Somehow it's all of those things. And we're caught in this tension between a book that's very, very difficult and very, very unique in the whole canon of Scripture and at the same time a book that just has inspired incredible worship and sets forth a beautiful and majestic vision of Jesus. So we sit in that tension to some degree. But it's an intimidating book to read. Uh, it's an intimidating book to preach. Spare a thought for me. I've got to preach right through this thing. It's going to be fun. But let me just uh, open with a quick roll call of some of the main characters that we'll meet in this series on Revelation as we go through this book. Here are some of the figures that we'll come across. We have a slaughtered lamb sitting upon a throne holding a scroll who then gets married. Nothing weird about that, is there? Uh, there's a woman who looks like the sun. There's a red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. There's a beast coming out of the sea who looks like a crossbreed between a leopard, a bear, and a lion. And there's a prostitute riding on a dragon. When you read the stuff in Revelation, honestly, you feel more like you're reading the script of a Peter Jackson movie than reading a book of the Bible. This is just strange, and it's obscure, and it's very difficult to make sense of. Here are some things that people have said about Revelation. Friedrich Nietzsche, the philosopher, said it is the most rabid outburst of vindictiveness in all recorded history. Tina Pippin, who's a feminist scholar, said Revelation is a misogynist male fantasy at the end of time. As my personal favorite, George Bernard Shaw, said it's the curious record of the vision of a drug addict. So... So John must have been on something when he wrote Revelation, surely. Uh, but despite all of that, and despite all of that negativity, this book has also inspired some amazing works of creative brilliance. You think of the movies that are in some way inspired by Revelation, apocalyptic-type movies like 2012, like Independence Day, like Armageddon. Even if they're not directly referencing Revelation, they're these kind of end-of-the-world-type movies. Think of the music that's been produced, inspired by parts of Revelation. Uh, Handel's Messiah, 
the Hallelujah Chorus and Handel's Messiah, taken straight from the, the worshipful words of Revelation 4 and 5. Uh, hymns that we sing, Holy, 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 Crown Him with Many Crowns. All these are lifted from the pages of Revelation. Even more contemporary worship songs like We Fall Down by Chris Tomlin. Uh, Revelation's inspired huge amounts of worship, and music. Think of the artwork that's been produced around Revelation. People that have taken these visions in Revelation and tried to bring them to some kind of graphic depiction. And we'll look, as we go through the series, we'll look at different examples of artwork uh, as people have tried to bring the visions to life. So on the one hand, Revelation is incredibly difficult and scary. On the other hand, it's majestic and it's beautiful. And you find among Christians, there tend to be a couple of ways of approaching revelation i don't mean interpretive ways i just simply mean what they do with it on the one hand there are christians who never read revelation it's too weird it's too bizarre it's too difficult it's too out there it's just intimidating and they don't want anything to do with it thank goodness it's at the end of the bible because we can basically just pretend like it doesn't exist uh, it, i don't think it's a stretch to say that functionally for many christians the bible ends with the book of jude i would say the, the, the evangelical canon of Scripture practically ends with the book of Jude. We just don't, apart from maybe a few selected worship passages in Revelation, we just don't tend to go near it, many people. And there have been some pretty leading Christian figures in history who have been in this camp of not really wanting to go near Revelation. It's the only book in the New Testament that John Calvin never wrote a commentary on. And Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, listen to what he says about Revelation. Neither apostolic nor prophetic. I can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. Again, they are supposed to be blessed who keep what is written in this book, and yet no one knows what that is, to say nothing of keeping it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. Isn't that extraordinary? Coming from Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, as Protestants, we all owe a legacy to him, but he couldn't see Jesus in Revelation. I don't know how he missed him, but he couldn't find Jesus in Revelation. And so for many people, Revelation is just something to avoid. On the other hand, there are a whole other category of Christians who seem to only read Revelation. It's their favorite book in the Bible. They're obsessed with it. They've got the, the whole wall chart on their bedroom at home. You know these people. They've got the whole wall chart of exactly how the end times is going to go down, blow by blow. They know it, man. They know who the Antichrist is, even though an Antichrist is not mentioned in Revelation, by the way. Uh, they know exactly when the rapture is going to happen, even though a rapture is never mentioned in Revelation, by the way. Uh, they know exactly when the world's going to end, even though the end of the world is never mentioned in Revelation, by the way. And they've just got the whole thing, and they're not afraid to tell you about it. I think the internet was made for such people. They just sit there and they blog about their views, you know, and they just, every time some uh, tragedy, some catastrophe happens anywhere on earth, you will find a huge section of people that will burst into print on the internet telling you this is a fulfillment of this particular part of Revelation, this particular image or this particular event. It's like they have the newspaper in one hand and the book of Revelation in the other, and they're just matching things up all the time. It becomes an obsession. So, my hope is in this series that we can somehow walk a middle road with this. That we can, on the one hand, I hope that we can demystify this book to some degree. That we can lift a bit of the fog and become a bit more familiar with it. Because we should. Because it's part of our Bible. It is just as much a part of our Bible as John or Romans, those safe books. Uh, and so we should be able to wander through it uh, comfortably, enjoying it and learning from it. 
On the other hand, I also hope that we don't become obsessed with it uh, and, and focus on it at the expense of the rest of Scripture. In fact, what we'll try and do is place it in the context of the whole canon of Scripture, the whole biblical story, and let it speak to us from there. Now, when it comes to Revelation, I think most Christians have a basic perception that Revelation is that book about the end times, or at least that it's a book about the future. I think if, if, if people think nothing else about Revelation, they tend to think it's a book about the future. It's that book, isn't it, that tells us the signs of Jesus' return, the signs of the end of the world so we can be ready, uh, how Jesus is going to come back, the final judgment, heaven and hell, and all those things that are going to be part of the end times. That's what Revelation's in the Bible for, isn't it? That's how we tend to think. And I certainly don't want to suggest that Revelation doesn't contain any material about the future. It certainly does. I don't know how, for example, you could read Revelation 21 and 22 and not think that that is a stunning depiction of the new heavens and the new earth that God is going to bring about in the future. Future to our day. Could happen any time, of course, but future to our day. But I think the problem is that when people get fixated on Revelation only as a book about the future, they tend to lose sight of a critical question. And it's a question that we will use to frame our discussion as we go through this book. It's a question really I think you should ask any time you open any book of the Bible. And the question is this. What did this book mean to its original audience? Not firstly, what does it mean for me today or what does it mean in the future, but what did this book mean for those people who first heard it sitting in those house churches in the Mediterranean in the first century? What did it mean to them? How would they have heard this? Because Revelation it was written to real people. It was written to real churches in real cities within a real empire in the first century. It fits into space-time history. There's a particular reason it was written, and it had particular things to say to those people. If you don't ask that question, then what happens is you get tempted to draw these one-to-one -one correlations between the people and the events and the colors and the numbers in Revelation and contemporary events today. We just default to applying it directly into my life and international politics and current events and crises that are going on in the world. The question of original meaning is a safeguard against that because it grounds us back in the world that this book came out of and it allows Revelation to speak to us from there. To be honest, this is nothing new. This is what we've been doing at Shaw as long as we've been, been doing expository teaching. We've always asked, what did this mean to its original audience? We've always asked that first. Uh, it's just that some, for some reason you get to Revelation, people don't want to ask that question anymore. They just want to jump straight to now and today and, 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 and maybe the plague of locusts are Russian spy planes and maybe the ten-headed beast is the European Union and we do all of these crazy things, you know. But we've got to get back to the first century. Not that we stay there. That would just be boring history. But we start there in order then to build a bridge from that world of the first century through to our world today and to carefully, prayerfully apply revelation into our contemporary context but only having first heard what it has to say by setting it back into the world that it comes out of so that's what we'll do that'll be our basic approach that'll be our approach every message that we do in revelation what did it mean then and what does it mean now 
And so really, when you look at Revelation, it's written into a world that's like our world and yet has some real differences to it. And as a way into this, I want to tell you the story of a woman named Claudia. A woman who's fictional. I just called her Claudia because that's a, a Roman woman's name in the first century. She doesn't really exist, but, but her story is typical of the type of people that Revelation was written to. And by giving you a story of Claudia's life, I want to start to ground us in the world that Revelation's written into and then start to draw some strands of application through to our world today. So let me tell you a little bit about Claudia. Claudia lives in Pergamum, one of the cities that Revelation is addressed to in the province of Asia. Uh, not the continent of Asia today. This was a province of the Roman world in the Mediterranean in the first century. She's living somewhere around the end of the first century. Claudia is a textile manufacturer. She works with cloth, dye, wool, fabric. She specializes in making this beautiful purple cloth that was uh, highly sought after in the whole Roman world. And the province of Asia, cities like Pergamum, cities like Colossae, uh, were specialists in producing this beautiful purple cloth that was worn uh, by royalty, among other people. Claudia's family also owns some farms outside of Pergamum. And they use those farms to produce flax and wheat and also to farm various kinds of animals, goats, bulls, other oxen. One of the main purchases of oxen from Claudia's family farm is the Pergamum city temple. Pergamum had a huge temple in its center and it was dedicated to the worship of Caesar, Caesar Augustus, the first official emperor of the Roman Empire and the great city of Rome. In fact, Pergamum was the first city in Asia, one of only a few, to have a provincial temple dedicated to the worship of Caesar. Many cities had little municipal temples, but uh, Pergamum had this provincial temple. It was staffed by imperial priests, and their role was quite simply to facilitate the worship of Caesar, the worship of the emperor, on behalf of the citizens of that city. And so the main civic event that the Pergamum temple would run were these emperor festivals, and they'd run them several times a year. And, it, and what happened is this. There would be a procession through the main city streets of Pergamum. The priests would be there and they'd be carrying huge banners uh, with Caesar's icon on them. Uh, the singers would be behind them. The musicians would be there. It would just be this huge procession snaking its way through the city. And as it passes various households, the citizens of those houses would come out of their homes. And each of them would have a little stone altar out, out on the street, out in front of their house. This would be as natural for them as putting Christmas lights on your house at Christmas time is for us today. They'd have a little altar there, and they'd have a small animal, a goat or a lamb. Animal lovers, block your ears for this next part. The, the procession would come along, and as it passed by people's homes, the families would slaughter the animal and sacrifice it on the altar in worship and veneration of Caesar. So sequentially, families were offering uh, these animals in worship to Caesar as the procession goes by. In fact, it was one of the only times that families in the ancient world would taste meat unless you were right up the top of the social ladder. So it was a real delicacy. It was a really important event. The animals that these families consumed and, and sacrificed were provided to them by the Pergamum temple. The temple bought them from farms like Claudia's family farm. And Claudia also, as a textile manufacturer, supplied the purple cloth that the priests wore for these occasions. So her business interests are very tied up with the workings of the temple and the whole system of the imperial cult, the system of emperor worship in the first century. Now, Claudia also loves to sing. She's a singer, and she's a member of the Pergamum Choral Association. It was called a hymnode back in those days. 
And the choir's repertoire mainly consisted of hymns in honor of Caesar, hymns that venerated Caesar as the son of a god, the one who had brought the gospel, the good news to the world, the one who had brought peace on the earth, the one who had ushered in a new era of peace for the whole earth. These were hymns, and the, and the choir sung them, and the, and the main festival, the main event that they would sing these hymns at was the biannual Pergamum Games. They were called the Sebasta Romania. And they were in honor of the current emperor at the time, Domitian, and his family called the Sebastoi. And again, sacrifices were made and hymns were sung and all this was in honor of the emperor and his family. Now, Claudia is also a, a civic-minded person. She's a good citizen of Pergamum. And she is on the committee for the restoration of the city gates, which have been damaged. The new gates have some engravings planned. There are going to be engravings that depict Domitian, the current emperor, his victories over his enemies, holding them at the edge of a sword. Everywhere Claudia goes in Pergamum, she sees images of Caesar in the marketplace, in the gymnasium, in the public baths, in the temple. Even in her home, she's got a portrait of Caesar on the wall in the atrium. This would have been totally normal. Her, her, her cutlery and crockery had images and engravings of Caesar on it. Even her jewelry had artistic depictions of Caesar. The coins that Claudia carried in her pocket had pictures of Domitian's son sitting over the globe, holding, holding the stars in his hand, deified as a god. This was the world that Claudia lived in. It was totally normal. It was totally natural. Now, as well as that, Claudia's recently become a follower of Jesus. And now she's meeting each week in a little house church in Pergamum. She's going along. She's listening to the teaching that's come from the apostles. She's taking the Lord's Supper. Uh, she's worshiping. She's singing hymns in honor of Jesus as a God. And she's enjoying the community of followers of Christ. And one day, the leader of her house church shows up, and he's got this letter from their pastor, Pastor John, because John was a pastor. He used to be with them and, and often visiting the church in Pergamum. He was the pastor over seven churches in Asia, the churches that Revelation's written to. But he's recently been exiled to Patmos. He's been sent away for treason against the empire, for speaking out against the empire. But from there, it hasn't slowed him down. He's been writing. He's been apparently receiving these amazing visions from Jesus. He's been putting them to paper. He's been circulating them around his church. And sure enough, this one gets to the Pergamum church. The leader of this house church opens the scroll and begins to read. And it begins with these words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that document has now made its way into our Bible as the book of Revelation. Again, the story is, is fictional, but I want to stress this is completely typical of life in these cities. Uh, Claudia is not a fanatic emperor worshipper. She's just a citizen. This is the world she lived in. This was life. This was culture. This was her world. And Revelation is written to people like Claudia. So the question becomes, what's Revelation intending to do? What's its purpose? What did it mean? How would Claudia have interpreted this book? Because I think Revelation is not so much giving Claudia a roadmap for the end times. I think it's giving her a new view of her present. I think Revelation is giving Claudia a new way of seeing the world that she lived in and particularly seeing the Roman Empire of her day. What Revelation does is it cuts through all the propaganda. It, it, it pops the bubble that Claudia's been living in. It cuts through all the rhetoric. It cuts through the party line. And it exposes the ugliness of the empire. It exposes the evils and the underside and the darkness and the idolatry of this empire called Rome. It unmasks it 
it shocks Claudia. It should shock Claudia into seeing the empire for what it is so that she can truly give her allegiance to Jesus as Lord. In the first century, the Roman Empire, or, or more particularly the city of Rome, was depicted as a goddess. The goddess Roma was her name, R-O-M-A in English. She was beautiful, she was stunning, she represented and embodied the glory of Rome, the, the beauty of Rome, the grandeur of Rome. Revelation comes along and it depicts Rome as a woman as well. But it depicts her as a very different type of woman. In Revelation, Rome is a prostitute. She's dressed in scarlet, interestingly enough, but she's a prostitute. And that's the contrast between the vision of Rome as a goddess and the vision of Rome as a prostitute who has sold herself out to idols, sold herself away from the living God by refusing to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and by daring to suggest that these men ruling the empire, sitting in a throne on a throne in Rome, were Lord. Rome has become nothing more than a common prostitute and an idolatrous empire. And in place of these Caesars who dared to call themselves Lord and allowed others to call them Lord, Rome gives us this beautiful and stunning presentation of the God upon the throne who is truly the one worthy to be worshipped. To him alone belong glory and honor and wisdom and power because he was before all things and has created all things. You can hear the refrain from Revelation 4. But that's not just a worship song in a vacuum. That's a statement. It's a counterattack to the idolatry of Rome. Because all of those things are what the empires and the emperors claimed for themselves. The glory, the honor, the power, the wisdom, the might. And so Revelation's taking them back and saying, No, it is this God upon the throne, it is Father, Son, and Spirit who alone deserve this glory and honor. They are the ones who are deserving of our worship, not Rome. And it is God's anointed representative here, Jesus, who is truly the ruler over the kings of the earth. And he's the one who has established God's kingdom. In opposition to Rome, Jesus has established the kingdom of God. The story of Revelation, one way of reading it, is that it's a cosmic battle between two authorities, the empire of Rome and the kingdom of God, battling it out for supremacy with Jesus leading the kingdom of God and Caesar leading the kingdom of Rome. And these two empires are clashing all the time. They're depicted along the way as cities, metaphorically as cities. Rome is depicted as Babylon, the archenemy of God's people in the Old Testament, Babylon. And uh, the kingdom of God is represented as Jerusalem, the center of God's presence and power in the Old Testament. So rich with Old Testament imagery. Babylon and Jerusalem fighting it out, battling it out, and you get to the final chapters in Revelation. This, this massive battle builds to a climax, and we see in Revelation 18 and 19, Babylon falls. Babylon comes to ruin. Rome is, is predicted as coming to ruin, portrayed as coming to ruin. And then you see in chapter 21, the new Jerusalem is established. The heavenly city comes from heaven to earth. God's reign is established, and the voice from the throne says, I'm making all things new. Finally, God's reign is here, God's future is revealed, and the kingdom of Christ has prevailed. That's the flow of this book. It's kingdom versus empire. It's not just, though, the religious dimension of the Roman Empire that Revelation aims its sights at. It also aims its sights at the violence and the persecution of the empire. 
if you were living in the first century, the story that you understood about the Roman Empire was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Caesar Augustus had brought peace to the world, he'd unified the empire, he'd secured its borders, he'd fended off the barbarians and he'd brought this new age of peace and prosperity to everyone. That was the party line. And for people like Claudia, it was easy enough to believe that. They lived a fairly good life. And from time to time, Rome would aim its sights at this little Christian community that dared to resist it. Because what Revelation exposes is that for Rome, the Pax Romana was peace at the end of a sword. It wasn't this nice, airy, fairy peace where we all hold hands in unity. This was a brutal peace that came about through violence and the conquest of foreign peoples. Revelation subjugated foreign peoples like the Jews, put heavy restrictions on them, sometimes forced them into, into slave labor. It dominated. It, 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 it tolerated absolutely no resistance, no dissenting voice, no counterclaim to allegiance was tolerated. That's why Jesus was crucified. That's why John was exiled, because that's what happens to people who speak against the empire and dare to suggest that there is another king besides Caesar. And Rome would, would periodically persecute the Christian church as well. Revelation depicts Rome as being drunk with the blood of God's people, making war on the people of God. And, and you have this picture of the souls, the martyrs from underneath the altar crying out, Christians suffered at the hands of the empire precisely because they declared allegiance to God alone. And so Revelation shows that this idolatrous empire, this violent empire, is not going to endure, that it will be conquered. But what's genius about Revelation is the way that this conquest of the empire comes about. So you might expect that Rome being this dominating empire is just conquered and completely annihilated by Jesus through, through sort of a violent bloodbath. But in fact, the central vision of Jesus in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 5, is this vision of Jesus as the lamb upon the throne, which in itself is a picture of incredible weakness. This lamb looking as though it had been slain. There is no weaker animal, and this lamb has even been slaughtered. Jesus in Revelation is not so much the cosmic street fighter who just comes along and beats everyone up who doesn't like him. He is the lamb upon the throne and the way that he conquers is by laying down his life. His conquest comes through self-sacrifice. His conquest comes through humility. His conquest comes through the giving of himself. In fact, when you think about it at the cross, Jesus himself won a victory by being conquered by Rome. He was at the edge of, of the empire there on a cross receiving the punishment of treason. And from the cross, Jesus brings about this incredible victory which triumphs over Rome and every other kingdom that sets itself up against God. But Jesus conquers not violence with violence, not might with might, but with the way of nonviolent resistance and the way of self-sacrifice and humble love. And in doing so, he gives the Christian communities a model for how they are to respond to the empire. Not by picking up a sword like Peter, but through the way of nonviolent resistance and patient, faithful endurance. That's why John says in chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, am your brother in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus. That's how you respond to the empire. It's the way of resistance, but it's not the way of picking up a sword. Jesus doesn't fight Rome with Rome's weapons, but he conquers 
through weakness and through sacrifice, which ultimately bring about the final victory. So Revelation is a counterclaim to the idolatry of Rome. It's a critique of the violence and the persecution of Rome. And finally, it's a critique of the greed of the empire. Rome was a greedy empire. Vast quantities of consumer goods flowed around the empire, flowed around the Mediterranean from port to port to port. Uh, like a little microcosm of our consumer society today, propping up the lifestyles of those who could afford the goods. In fact, when, Re when Rome falls, when Babylon falls in Revelation 18, the ones who are most upset about it are the sea merchants, the, the sailors, because their, their trade is so affected, uh, because they can no longer ship these, these goods around. But Rome was an opulent empire. Again, underneath all this, though, is the lifestyles of a few, the, the rich, the leaders, the political powers, and at the bottom of the heap were human slaves, millions of slaves, through the Roman Empire. People that worked on Claudius' farms would have been heavily, uh, maybe in, in, in former circumstances, heavily taxed and forced to sell their property, sell their children, sell themselves into slavery just to be able to survive. This was the reality of the empire. And so Revelation shows that despite all of its glitz and glamour, Rome is going to come to ruin. It will not survive. It will not endure. But what will endure forever is the kingdom of of God. Uh, this other empire of Rome with all its pearls and its glamour just comes to dust and ashes. And that's spectacularly portrayed in Revelation 18 and 19. Okay, now, stepping back from all that for a minute, take a breath. That may be a bit of a different way of thinking about Revelation to what you're used to. Uh, if you are used to just seeing Revelation as the end times book that gives you a road map for how it's all going to go down at the end of the world, then this is going to be quite out of left field for you. But I would argue that this is simply placing Revelation back into the world that it came from, trying to listen to it through the ears of people like Claudia who first heard it. And I would argue that this makes Revelation so much more relevant to us today. It's tempting maybe at this point just to write it off as a book that's consigned to the first century. We don't live under the Roman Empire anymore, so what does this mean for us? But think for a minute. We are not that dissimilar to Claudia. Every day, we pass images on billboards, on the TV, when you pull up your homepage, images that call us to a particular allegiance to particular gods and particular worldviews. We have stuff in our homes, the way we spend our time, the way we spend our money, our priorities all speak to us of what our values are, of what truly drives us and where our allegiance really is. Uh, sometimes we get caught up like Claudia in business practices or social practices or civic practices that can have an ambiguous relationship with the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world and where that line really is. We're not that dissimilar after all because like Claudia, we live within the shadow of an empire. In fact, we live in the shadow of many empires. Don't think of an empire just as a political entity, like a corrupt and oppressive government. Think of an empire as any system of control, any big story that is told that captures the minds and hearts of people, any big way of understanding the world that makes sense of life, orders our reality, and structures the way that we act and live and the choices that we make. So empire can be as much an ideology as it can be a political entity. A, a good place to start, maybe, is to think about an empire today, the empire of consumerism. Basically functions as an empire, the empire of global 
consumerism. It is a big story for us. Just like the Pax Romana was the story in the first century, Caesar has brought peace, therefore worship Caesar. Consumerism today is the narrative of most Western countries and many non-Western countries. The narrative that the path to personal peace and happiness is through the acquisition of more stuff and the next thing and the best thing and the upgrade and I've got to have the next iPad and then the old iPad's worthless, I'll flog that on Trade Me and I just go through the next product cycle and this is going to be the path to enlightenment for me. We might not put it in those terms, but we are driven by the pursuit of wealth and the acquisition of material goods to prop up our lifestyle relative to people around us. It's the empire of consumerism. It tells us a big story and it structures our lives. What about other empires? You might like to think of some in your, uh, in your life group and conversations, but let me just give you a few. The empire of militantism that tells us the way to solve international politics and problems is through violence and conquest and the use of force. That was basically the narrative that Rome lived by as well. The empire of nationalism, which tells us that my country is the highest good, even above God, and is worth giving myself for, even in place of God. We may not be as susceptible to that in New Zealand, but I think it could be argued that in some places in the world that is a real issue. What about ideologies? Think about secular humanism as an empire. It tells us a big story that human beings are the highest beings in the universe, that we are basically in the place of God, that the natural world, what we can perceive and see, touch, feel, etc. with our senses is all that there is. Therefore, we make the rules and we determine our own reality. That provides a whole framework for the way that we live and the choices that we make and the worldview that we hold. It functions like an empire. Uh, the empire of hedonism, which tells us that happiness and personal pleasure is the highest good. So figure out what makes you happy and just spend your life doing that. That's all you need to do. Or the opposite of hedonism, which is nihilism, and that plunges us into depression and despair and pessimism over the miserable state of the world. And we get so depressed about it that we have no way out. It offers no answers. Think of the empire of modernism through the age of enlightenment and, and, and reason, which tells us that rational scientific inquiry and, and, and rational thinking and logic are themselves a kind of God, that even God himself has to be subject to the canons of reason. Think of the empire of postmodernism that tells us there is no longer a meta-narrative. There can no longer be a big story. It's just all now local narratives and personal narratives, and we construct meaning and reality for ourselves. All of these empires, while they may not all be bad and they may not all be idolatrous, they all attempt to structure our world and our reality without reference to God. There are others I'm sure you could think of. I was having a conversation with someone this week who talked about technology as a type of empire that structures our lives, or mass media and, and, the, and the communication uh, industry as a type of empire that orders our reality with, with people at the top, people like Rupert Murdoch having a huge amount of influence over the way we ultimately think. You could list off various empires that we live within today. And when you start thinking along those lines, then Revelation really has something to say right into the 21st century because it unmasks those empires. It may not mention them by name, but it unmasks them and it helps us to see them for what they are, counterfeits and parodies of the true kingdom of God. And in place of these empires, Revelation calls us to fall on our faces and worship the Lamb upon the throne. Worship the one who is truly worthy of our praise and our worship, to center ourselves and our lives and our world again around Christ. But to do that in a way that wrestles with what it means then to live within an empire, because it's not as simple as just leaving the empire. 
You couldn't say to Claudia, just get out of Rome, just get out of the empire. She was in the empire, you can't just leave it. Um, she had to wrestle with what this means to be faithful to the kingdom of God in the midst of Rome, right in the heart of it. And so we need to wrestle with that too. What does it mean to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven and to follow the Lamb even while we're living in Babylon, in a sense, even while we're doing time in Babylon? We live in both worlds. So how do we figure out how we give true allegiance to Christ in the middle of that? These are questions we'll wrestle with in the course of this series. And ultimately, Revelation gives us tremendous hope that the empires of our world don't have the final word. Much as they seem all-consuming and dominating and all-pervasive, they do not have the final word. But in the end, the kingdom of Christ is going to prevail. And Revelation pulls our hearts forward to that day when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom and makes all things new. And it structures our present around that so that we keep persevering and we remain faithful and we give God our allegiance and we hang in there and we quietly practice ways of resistance against the empires that we find ourselves within. In the 1930s, in Germany, under the Nazi government, the Nazi state, the German state, was trying to co-opt the church into its service, trying to basically use the, the church, particularly the Protestant church, as a vehicle of its own propaganda to spread its message, to be its eyes and ears, and to uh, be an organ of the state. And sadly, the history books reveal that the church in large measure went along with that and became basically co-opted into the service of the Nazi government. But a few didn't. A few Christians, and, and I don't know how they saw what others didn't see, but somehow a few Christians seemed to be able to have the eyes, have the, have, have the discernment to see the reality of the empire that they were living in. And they became known as the Confessing Church. They were led by Karl Barth, the theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the pastor, the Confessing Church. And they practiced not a, not a way of violence against the German state, but just a quiet way of nonviolent resistance. They would treat everybody as equally human, made in the image of God. They would insist on the limits of state control over all areas of German life and society, and especially their limits over the church. They would pledge allegiance to God alone. And in these ways, just ordinary ways, everyday conversation, they pledged allegiance to a higher authority. One writer uh, who documented this confessing church wrote this about them. In the circumstances of the Nazi tyranny, resistance became the only human way to live. To exist under Nazism in silence, conformity, fear, was fatally dehumanizing, constituted a form of death. Resistance was the only stance worthy of a human being as much in responsibility to oneself as to all other humans, as the famous commandment mentions. And even though we live in different times uh, and in a different place, the book of Revelation, at its heart, is a resistance manifesto for the confessing church in every generation. In the face of empires that seem all-consuming and overwhelming, Revelation calls us to a different allegiance, to a different Lord. It calls us to bow the knee and worship the Lamb upon the throne, to practice the way of resistance against the empire. And it calls us, above all, as Revelation 14 says, to be those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. 
So may that be true of us as we journey through this series together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the stunning book of Revelation. It's an amazing piece of literature and we acknowledge, Lord, that uh, you have inspired it by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that as we embark on this journey that you would reveal to us the empires that we're living in. Reveal to us, God, things that we don't see about our world, about our lives. Show us what we're not aware of that we need to be woken up to. And Father, I pray you'd give us a new glimpse of your kingdom and the centrality and the importance of Jesus, the Lamb upon the throne. I pray that image of the Lamb upon the throne would be so centering for us and so grounding for us and that we may orientate our lives around it. Lord, we're willing to hear what you've got to say through this book. We know it's going to be tough going in parts and it's very mysterious. And in many ways, Lord, we don't want that mystery to be lifted because that's what makes you God that you maintain a lot of mystery about your purposes in this world. But we ask that to some degree you would lift this fog and enable us to really enjoy and experience this book, to be blessed by it, but more than that, to be changed by it and transformed by it, even as we live in the shadow of empire in our own world. So we thank you for this book and commit our way to you. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.